For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. This week, the Orion spacecraft from NASA's Artemis One mission splashed down in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Baja, California, a picture-perfect end to a mission that went out beyond the moon, delivered incredible photos, and most importantly, proved the SLS Orion system after a troublesome launch campaign. But what's ahead for Artemis now? With this mission in our rearview mirror, what should we turn our attention to as the agency prepares for Artemis II, the first flight with crew, and Artemis III, the first lunar landing? Is it easy breezy for NASA now that they know the spacecraft works, or are there significant challenges that still remain? Where are we at with the lunar lander? Where are we at with the spacesuits? These are all big questions that I'll be turning my attention to now. One journalist who's been getting ahead of these questions, however, is Eric Berger from Ars Technica. I called him up today to ask more about what's ahead, and he joins me now to discuss. All right, so I'm here today with Eric Berger from Ars Technica. Eric, welcome to We Martians. Hey, Jake. Lovely to talk to you today. Yeah, you know, it's actually funny. I can't believe it's taken this long to get you on. I feel like, uh, I, I don't know, maybe I just feel like we always talk over on Off Nominal, and I always feel like you're, I'm getting lots of you, but then I realized that uh, there was no Eric Berger on We Martians yet, so I'm excited to be rectify that today. <laughs> yeah, I feel, like, I feel like I should have a beer when I'm talking to you for some reason. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, so I'm sure that most of my listeners uh, will know who you are, whether they, you know, read your articles or if they saw you on Off Nominal. But just for the few that maybe don't, do you want to just give a quick little rundown of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a journalist. I worked at the Houston Chronicle for about 15 years covering science and some space. And then for the last seven or eight years, I've been at Ars Technica as their senior space writer. Um, I cover space full time. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about Artemis today. Um, you know, this is a, um, a mission that I knew I, I wanted to do an, a podcast about once it had finished. I did one kind of before and I will do one kind of after. It's funny because I was making a list of all the topics I wanted to, to cover. I had to put like a list of questions. And as I looked through them, I realized that they were just a list of your articles. And so I knew that you were the right person to talk to about this. So I'm excited to dig in. Um, but let's just start with Artemis 1. So Mission is over. Uh, we're splashed down. Everything seems to have gone pretty well. I'd love to just hear your take on on how uh, the mission proceeded as it went through. Uh, I think it was a stunning technical success for NASA to take what was the debut launch of this rocket. Um, and while it had engines and other commonalities with the space shuttle, this was a brand new launch vehicle. And it performed essentially flawlessly. And then Orion had this 25 and a half day mission where they really put the service module to the test. And, and there were some lots of questions before the launch about whether how the European made service module, which basically provides propulsion and power to the Orion capsule would perform. And there were some minor issues with the power distribution system and some, some things they were trying to correct. But you know, for a mission that lasted more than three weeks and took them out far beyond the moon and then came down and made a picture-perfect splashdown, 
it, it was a phenomenal success for NASA. And very important, I mean, for them to demonstrate that they can still do this, right? It's been mm -hmm. 11 years since the space shuttle's retirement, and NASA itself has not launched a rocket since then. And after a decade, they did it, and they did it very well. Yeah. 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 I was, um, you know, I think I would say that I was kind of surprised by that. So I, I was a pretty, I was pretty pessimistic about the whole thing kind of in August, September when things were not going too well for the launch campaign. And, um, you know, I especially thought that given all the, the, the weird issues that had, you know, cropped up in this very extended, you know, 90 days that it took them from when they first wanted to go to when they actually went. Um, there were so many things that had popped up there. I figured that once they lifted off, we were going to discover all the other things that, you know, were going to pop up. Um, but that launch went really well. And yeah, Orion really did quite superbly. So I was pretty surprised by it. I don't know if that, that did you find that sort of um, unexpected or, or, or not? I mean, my my going in proposition with NASA is, is when they do stuff, generally it works, right? I mean, this is the agency that pulled off the unfurling of the James Webb Space Telescope earlier <laughs> Yeah. And that was a, even a more complex procedure in space, I would argue, than what they did with Artemis 1. And so I guess it didn't surprise me. That would sort of have been my supposition that they would carry this off. But it's still very, very impressive to see them, them do this and... And again, really on the first time out for both of these vehicles, setting aside the boilerplate Orion that flew in 2014. Like, like I mm -hmm. said, it's, it's what they were trying to do here was difficult and they nailed it. Yeah, yeah. The Orion is really interesting too because we already saw, you know, there was a problem with this one with that power distribution unit. I think it was that, that failed. Uh, I think it was almost two years ago now that it, it had, you know, gone out inside while it was getting put together at KSC. And I, my big fear was that like this stuff had kind of aged a bit and there was something, you know, if that one went out, what else had gone out as well? Um, but it did pretty, it did pretty strongly. So I think, yeah, Orion really kind of came out there. You know, my takeaway from that is that these are pretty robust vehicles, right? Mm -hmm. They were expensive. They were over-designed. They took, in Orion's case, nearly two decades to sort of reach this point. But when push came to shove, they performed. I think what was most impressive to me is that six days before the launch, they sat out there on the pad in a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it, that's a robust vehicle um, mm -hmm. and it's impressive. And so while I think a lot of us were not happy with the process by which we got here um, and the politics and the costs and the amount of time, the fact that when they did, when the curtain went up and it was time, it was showtime, the flight control team at NASA, the mission managers, they delivered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess all, all that cost has to has to have some benefit somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right, so you'd rate, rate Artemis 1 with a pretty high letter grade then? What do you think? Well, I'd give it an A or even an A+. Plus. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's hard to imagine an initial test flight of such a complex system going this well. Um, so mostly what I want to talk about today is is really looking ahead now because now we have uh, Artemis 1 in our rearview mirror finally after all this time and um, there's 
I, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I was talking with Anthony about this. We're just so excited to not have to talk about Artemis 1 anymore. We can, like, move on to, to some new ideas and new content. And there's some interesting stories, I think, kind of looking ahead at, at how we get to Artemis 2 and to 3 and to beyond all that. Um, so maybe let's just start with Artemis 2 then. So can we get, like, a bit of a status update? How How is this mission progressing? Where are we at with this? And maybe we'll kind of dig into what what you think the long pull items are like what's the the biggest roadblock for uh, artemis 2 on time call it well now that artemis 1 is in the books it's that was the biggest hurdle like they had to fly that mission Mm -hmm. they had to demonstrate the rocket they had to demonstrate the spacecraft and they checked those boxes and so i I think that was a huge stepping stone sort of opening the door to the future of this program um the long pull item is is the eight avionics boxes on Artemis one capsule that they're reusing the Orion capsule? They've got to take those off the spacecraft. They've got to you know test them, recertify them, test them, and then reintegrate them in the capsule that will be used for Artemis two. And that process, depending on who you ask, is twenty one months, twenty four months, or twenty seven months. Hmm. Uh, I would always lean toward the longer estimate. So I think you know we're probably looking at a mission in early 2025 for Artemis II. But the fact that the rocket performs so well um, suggests that the flow they've got going for this vehicle, there's I, I don't see any showstoppers to them to reaching this point. And then, you know, Orion, they've got to put the life support equipment on board and, and so forth, and they've got to do some final tests on that. But they've had a long time to work on that. Um, you know, and so I think that probably will be ready to go. So it's really... You know, the main main issue will be certifying those avionics boxes and then sort of a wild card event like someone drops a critical piece of equipment in the, the high bay or, or who knows what. But, mm-hmm. you know, barring some kind of unforeseen event, I think a launch within a couple of years is, is a reasonable time frame. And, you know, it, I think the time is going to go by pretty quickly because we waited a long time for Artemis 1. If you think about it, the last mission, Exploration Flight Test 1, EFT-1, back in December of 2014, that was when they flew Orion up to about uh, 3,600 kilometers yeah. and then brought it back. You know, it, it, it was eight years later that um, we had to wait for Artemis 1. And now, now we're looking at two years, and they're going to name a crew next spring. And so, the, you know, we'll be able to follow their training along. And it, it just, now that they've done the first one, the program just feels a lot more real than it did even a couple months ago when you're right. You know, we were tracking the countdown, the issues, the loading with hydrogen, the hurricanes. It just, you just had a sense that, you know, I don't know if this mission's ever going to fly. And then mm-hmm. lo and behold, it did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the rocket's supposed to be delivered, like the core stage is supposed to be delivered as early as the spring. Like, I think it's already on the way pretty much, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure what the current timing is, but yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll get the rocket there sometime next year. And then they can, you know, depending, it's, it's really going to take, see how long it takes to get Orion integrated with the service module and the service module stacked on it. And then, you know, they don't have to do, I don't think they're going to do a static fire test this time. Um, I, I actually, I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure they're not going to do another green run test though. So they no, shouldn't yeah, have that. Yeah, no whole, green one. I don't think so, but they're. I mean, no, I no green run or no, not even a, will they do a wet dress rehearsal? Um, oh, I should yeah, know that, I but I don't. Um <laughs> Anyway, the process, they, they've done it now, so it'll be more smooth. So I think, you know, it's coming. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about these avionics boxes because you wrote a great article about it. Because I've had a ton of questions about these. You know, so the idea has been to to reuse them on on Artemis two for a long time. I think for years this has been the plan, and I never quite understood it because and and you wrote that they had uh, uh, trying to plug a, a budget hole, right? So they they were a hundred million dollars short somewhere, and reusing the avionics boxes closed that that accounting, I guess. Um, but I mean, the, the rocket was pretty late. And so th- there should have been kind of extra money in those interim years. And so I kind of don't understand how that plan played out. Maybe you could walk me through it a little better because I still don't think I'm very clear on it. Yeah. So the, the main thing is the decision to do this was made in 2014, 2015, when they had the budgetary issue. And the idea was like, well, look, we can pull these 24 boxes off of the Orion 1 capsule and put it on Orion 2 and we don't have to make those boxes. Mm-hmm. And okay, it filled the budget hole. And at the time, if you remember, NASA was planning not to build a second mobile launch tower. So the right. plan was to to launch one time in this block one configuration, then build the exploration upper stage and rebuild the launch tower to support the larger rocket. And that process was going to take, I think, 33 months. And so a two-year process to recertify avionics boxes makes sense in that context. And so the decision was not made until 2019 or 2020 to build a second launch tower and fly the Artemis 1, 2, and 3 on the Block 1 version of the SLS rocket. So at that point, 2019, 2020, then they're like, whoa, we'd better start trying to accelerate production of these boxes. And so what they did is they had been starting to build this this avionics and flight hardware for Artemis 3, right? On the assumption that these 24 boxes would be used for one and two. So what they started to do was pull that hardware for Artemis 3 and actually put that in the production for Artemis 2. And so that's why you went from about two dozen boxes down to eight. The problem is the, the production of the Artemis 3 hardware is not fully complete. And so it's still faster for eight of those boxes to recertify them. I mean, if Artemis 1 had kept slipping, kept slipping, then they could have actually closed the, the time between Artemis 1 and Artemis 2 because they could have just used Artemis 3 flight hardware. But that wasn't that all hadn't all been produced yet. And so they've mm-hmm. got to still use the Artemis 1 hardware. Okay, so it's actually like a mix. So they're using some of them from the, from the current capsule and they're bringing forward some from Artemis 3. Yeah, now they're bringing like two-thirds of the hardware forward from Artemis 3 and they'll... they'll <sighs> take the Artemis 1 hardware and fly that on Artemis 3. Okay. That's that's the part I was missing. I was like, because <laughs> you mentioned that they were bringing them forward. And I was like, well, if they're bringing them forward, then why are we talking about this anymore, right? But yeah. uh, they're not bringing all of them forward. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And actually, the way it was explained to me, like every month or two you had of Artemis 1 slippage would be like another box would come forward. So you'd reach at some point in the future. Where it, it was... <laughs> That's really funny to think about. <laughs> They're just getting this. It's like a delay mm. counter coming in. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. So yeah, so if they get you know twenty seven months, yes, yeah, that is sort of something that um, that they'll have to they'll have to deal with. I, I'm I remember just, I was so shocked at the price too. Like a hundred million bucks seems like a lot for for computers, but I've I've some smart people have told me that avionics boxes for for that kind of hardware are very expensive everywhere. So I don't know. I don't know if there's well, much to know, talk about the... there, but. One of the revolutionary things that commercial space has tried to do, um, and what, what Hans Koenigsman told me, he was one of the earliest employees at SpaceX, that like his goal when he came in was instead of buying a $100,000 flight-rated computer for an avionics system, was to adapt existing hardware. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the commercial space industry is trying to get there in terms of flying off the shelf components. And, but NASA can't really afford to take those risks with Orion. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it costs a lot. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a hundred million dollars for a program that was spending like 1.1 billion a year back in that time frame was not that much to be spending just on the avionics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's Artemis two, um, and then we can look to three because that's obviously where things start to get interesting. Um, hold on, hold on. Let me get some binoculars here because that's pretty <laughs> far in the distance. <laughs> yeah. Look. Yeah. So, so this is um, uh, your your famous uh, space prophet comes into the story here. Um, so uh, this is the 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 person who sort of famously predicted five years ago that the launch would be in 2023 and yeah. they were only off by about six weeks. So that's a, that's a pretty, pretty wild thing to predict. And now they're saying, they're telling you that Artemis three is not going to happen in 2025. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah. I don't think anyone reasonably expects it to happen in 2025. No. Um, and, and, and this source said he thought that a good sort of realistic date would be 2028. I think that's probably right on. You know, you think about it. Okay, so Artemis 2 is going to fly in 2025. So theoretically, you could have Orion and the SLS rocket ready in 2026 if that next flight goes well. Hmm. Okay. Um, Okay. You know, that's good. But then you've got to get the spacesuits. Number one, you you know, you're not going to send a mission to the moon and not have the astronauts go outside, even though that was considered very early on when they were trying to think of ways to make 2024. There will be new, they need new spacesuits. And so NASA has given a contract to Axiom Space to develop the spacesuits for Artemis 3. These are the suits they go out and walk on the surface of the moon in. Now, Axiom Space is a company here in Houston. It's just a couple miles from where I'm sitting right now. And they're great people, but they've never built the spacesuit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're working with NASA. NASA's given them all their technical design expertise, but that's hard. And that's new processes. And and so actually I was just talking to the spacesuit guy at JSC, their sort of their deputy program manager for that last week. And I was like, he's I was like, these aren't gonna be ready, are they? And he's like, oh no, no, no. We're whole, you know, the contractors are working toward mid to late 2025 for spacesuit delivery and, and they're on schedule. I don't think that'll happen. I mean, these are complex, they're mini spacecraft. And, you know, when you ask Axiom, can I see some photos of the hardware you're you're building? You're not getting any pictures of spacesuits. Yeah. So I think three years is very aggressive for them to be ready on the spacesuits. And so that's number one. Number two, of course, is the lunar lander. This is the Starship vehicle. And I have to tell you, get ready for lots of, crap to be thrown at SpaceX um, for the for the Starship Lunar Lander, that people are going to look at that and say, well, it's it's because of Lunar Lander that, that Artemis 3 is delayed. And, and technically, that's true, right? I mean, it's, it's Starship probably will end up being the long pole. Mm-hmm. But I think some perspective here, I would just like to add to your, to your listeners is, you know, the first Orion contracts were let by NASA in 2005. The first space launch system contracts were let in 2011. Okay, so it took them a full decade plus to get to their first flight test. The first NASA contract for Starship was let at the end of 2021 after the protests. 
a year ago. And this first spacesuits contracts were let in September. So, you know, if they're ready in four or five years, that's still twice as fast as SLS and Orion, which are complex vehicles. But I mean, a lunar lander is, is pretty darn complex too. So, you know, it's, I just think it would be sort of unfair to heap too much anger and angst sort of toward SpaceX and Axiom for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right about the, the, the fairness aspect of it. And uh, I mean, that's... It's going to be politics. They're going to be looking at the the long pole item and putting all the blame there for sure. But um, that 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 aside, like I'm curious to know what you think about SpaceX's kind of development schedule here because I mean they've never made a lunar lander either. Not you know not many people have, and uh, they're trying to build it sort of into a launch vehicle system that is also not ready. And that you know doing those in parallel is going to make interesting uh, challenges come up. So. Like it just maybe just in terms of schedule, what is Eric's space profit uh, uh, brain? What do you think is, is an, a reasonable expectation to see some things for this? Because, you know, even even Bill Nelson yesterday on the uh, the, the press briefing said some I'm sure he misspoke. But, you know, he was thinking there's going to be an uncrewed landing for this uh, as early as, as this year or next year. Right. And yeah, he said 2023 for the uncrewed landing. And I think he meant 2024. Yeah. And then the crewed landing in 2025. But yeah. So so here's the deal. Right. They've got it. The, everyone, everyone at that company right now is focused on get it. Well, everyone except the CEO. <laughs> we, will, we will unfortunately set aside. Um, but everyone at that company is focused on getting to that orbital flight test because that really is the key point at which they're going to get data and, and see if the system works and see what modifications they need to make. Um, at the same time, they are very much sort of and I wrote a little bit about this last week, but they're moving beyond sort of the cowboy phase of Starship, mm -hmm, which was yeah. launch them and see what happens to now like, we're going to launch this rocket and we are going to make damn sure that it doesn't destroy the launch tower or facilities in South Texas because it took us more than a year and a lot of money to build those. Um, and so they're being, they're being very careful. And that's one of the reasons why this orbital flight test date keeps slipping, right? To now, I think the first quarter of next year is probably... A reasonable no earlier than date for that flight, um, and, and so okay, they've got to get through that flight test. They've got to they've got to show that the super heavy rocket works. They've got to show that Starship can make an, a reentry from space, and then they've got to work on landing those vehicles. And then once they get that, then they can start launching demonstration missions with Starship. I mean Starlink. They can start sending some of their own payloads up and, and continue getting experience flying the vehicles. And then they've got to build an orbital depot. Um, fuel depot and where they can store um, cryogenic propellants, uh, oxygen and, and methane in, in low earth orbit. And then they've got to start practicing refilling that. And then they've got to, you know, then they've got to build Starship to go to the moon. And then they've got to figure out how to safely land on the moon and take off. And they've got to demonstrate that all. And so like all of that needs to happen before the demonstration mission, which is uncrewed to the lunar surface. And so... I'm looking at my calendar right now. It's December 12th, 2002. I mean, I, I think SpaceX is, is can work miracles, but I don't think they're going to do that demonstration mission in two years. Um, yeah. I think it's more likely 2025 or 2026, get a lot of data, and then and then start talking about getting ready for humans. Yeah. So that kind of lines up with this idea of, of Artemis 3 in 2028 then, you know, like 
getting these these uh, this, this lander in place because I, I totally agree with you. Like, there's that's a lot. You know, that list you just made <laughs> is uh, is non-trivial, right? Of those things that they have to accomplish there. It's right? non-trivial and it's unprecedented, right? Mm-hmm. It, this orbital refueling, storage, transfer has never been done at a scale like this at all, um, yeah. and, and nor has launching a rocket with. Um, 33 engines, right? And then trying to land it and, and, and bring back Starship. It's just, it's just a lot of unprecedented things that, look, they're working very hard on. They have some of the smartest people in the industry. They have pretty good funding, but these are major challenges. And so they've got a lot, they've got a lot of technical work ahead of them to get through. Cool. Um, and then this last topic looking ahead here, this this might be completely moot if 2028 is Artemis 3, because that means Artemis 4 is some other decade, probably. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Block 1B, I mean, the exploration upper stage is sort of an endless fascination for me about like its mythical existence. And um, I'm just curious, like... It, it, is this something that we ever actually see fly or are we going to kind of keep seeing the block ones sort of being recycled in place of it so that they can they can actually have a cadence? Because I'm really worried about this upper stage and this extra tower that comes with it. Like those two things together feel like, I don't know, I, I'm that's that's where most of my pessimism lies. I don't know. I don't know about you, but. Well, the way I look at the exploration upper stage, which Boeing has the contract to develop for NASA and is essentially a much more powerful upper stage that will sit on top of the SLS rocket's core stage and allow them to, to send a lot more mass to the lunar surface. Um, I view that as kind of the last of the Mohicans in the sense <laughs> that this is really, I think, the last big cost plus contract that industry is going to get to, to swallow up um, because it was sort of let two or three years ago before there was an entire sort of trust in SpaceX and Blue Origin just wasn't ready to do the upper stage for for um, SLS. And so Boeing got the contract um, and it, they got it on a cost plus arrangement. And I think you'll see it fly, but it's, it's a ways off. And um, then there's, the, you brought up the launch tower. And so the, the IG, NASA Inspector General, put out a report earlier this year, basically talking about what a cluster that pro what that program was. It was, you know, NASA has now spent about half a billion dollars on the launch tower, and and construction is yet to even begin. Um, this design work with Bechtel, the contractor, and he, the the new estimated cost was like nine hundred and eighty million dollars. Someone just told me that it was actually now up to a billion and a half the cost estimate, but I have not been able to properly vet that number, so I'm just kind of th- throwing that out there. Um, I I think. You know, the earliest this launch tower could be ready is 2026 or 2027, and they've got to do all the testing. So Artemis 4 is supposed to fly with this exploration upper stage and new launch tower, and it follows Artemis 3. And so I agree. I mean, it's hard to see this mission flying before 2030. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so the question then, the question really becomes, it, it, it's, it's all about the execution, right? Can SLS and Orion fly as they were intended? Clearly the answer now is yes, they did it and they did it really well. Um, And so now the question is, can Starship fly close to as intended, right? A fully reusable super heavy lift launch vehicle. And and the answer to that is is the jury is still out. Um, And maybe, you know, maybe we'll get answers on that in the next year or two. Maybe we won't. Maybe there'll be more delays that, that keep pushing this 
forward into the future. And so that's, that's, it's, it's about execution. Then it's about cost because, you know, for SLS and Orion to hang around long-term, those costs have to come down. There's a clear recognition of that at the people at NASA I talk to, you know, whether that sinks into industry, I don't know. I mean, Aerojet, for God's sake, is charging more than a hundred million dollars for every RS-25 engine it sells NASA for the SLS rocket. That's completely absurd, um, that price. Um, And so if Starship can fly and if Starship's costs are more reasonable, then over time you will see a movement, I think, from SLS Orion onto Starship and other commercial launch vehicles. But it comes down to execution. And that was one of the big things about Artemis 1. Like, you know, we've been promised for a long time that these vehicles were going to be going to work. And and lo and behold, they did. And that, that was a really important message. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So if we try and end on, on more positive notes, then uh, you, you mentioned, you tweeted about something to this effect about how this feels real. Now this feels like a real deep space program, which we have, you know, I, I don't think we've ever been this close since Apollo. This is definitely something that feels a lot more real. Um, why do you think that is? And, and is it is it just execution that we can continue it? Like, you know, what is the key to sustaining that? Or how do we how do we not lose sight of where we are? <laughs> I just I just I think the most impressive thing about the Artemis program is the momentum behind it. Yeah, it feels unstoppable to me. I mean, if you dabble in space policy history, which I do, there has never been a time since Apollo when you've had the White House. Congress, traditional space industry, new space slash commercial space, and the wider advocacy community all aligned behind the same goal. I mean, you run the We Martians podcast. Think back to like seven or eight years ago with the journey to Mars, and there was this huge food fight between the Mars people and the moon people. Mm-hmm. And that's been going on for decades. Um, and you know, we only got the Apollo program because JFK needed a way, President Kennedy needed a way to show the world that the U.S. could compete with the Soviets on a technical excellence. And if he hadn't been killed, assassinated, the momentum for that program probably would have died out. But once he died, it sort of became President Lyndon Baines Johnson's mission to sort of carry that torch forward to honor the memory of Kennedy and it was sort of a rallying cry through some very difficult political times. I mean, Congress was not really on board mm-hmm. with 5% of the federal budget being spent on space. It was really an extravagance. Um, and Kennedy's death sort of crystallized, I think, the ambition to see that carried out. You know, fast forward to today, where this program has gone from George W. Bush to Barack Obama to Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And like, it's still there and it's stronger than ever. And you add on top of that, you now have like two dozen countries that have signed on to the Artemis Accords. Um, And that's really like, you know, you talk about like plot armor in a movie, right? Where the main character can't die because, and I think that's plot armor for the Artemis program because you're going to go tell the European Space Agency, Japan, Canada, Brazil, countries, I mean, on every continent in the world that, hey, oh, by the way, we're not going to do this anymore. Thanks for thanks for signing up and, you know, putting your political capital and investing in this, but, you know, we're, we're not doing it anymore. No, it's happening. I think 
the questions are ultimately on the architecture, what vehicles ultimately fly. But I'm I'm so pumped up because it's the first time in my lifetime, I'm 49 years old, where I feel like we have a credible, sustainable deep space exploration program for people. And it's not going to happen as fast as we want and maybe not the exact way we want, but it is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be great to follow. That's exciting. Yeah, that's a great way to, great way to end it. I'm excited for it too. Uh, you know, I was watching... Um, I was watching all this Apollo 17 stuff with the anniversary. I was all the, you know, watch the launch again and then all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it still evokes, you know, watching people walk on the moon still evokes such a a visceral feeling for me. And and I'm, I'm really jazzed to be able to get some new footage for that. So I really hope, I really hope this all succeeds and and I get to see, uh, you know, some, some cool Artemis walk up to there. The real success will come if we can build upon Apollo. You know, yeah. the, a major criticism of Artemis is that it's just a repeat of Apollo. And frankly, for the first three missions, it absolutely is. But if we can take it further from there, then it will be a, a huge success. And, and there is so much potential, you know, for activities on the surface of the moon, around the moon, eventually, you know, expanding that sphere outward to Mars. Um, I, I think this is the right way to do it. We've just got to, you know, we've just got to keep pushing forward. And, and like, like I said, just demonstrating technical competence like NASA did over the last month was so important, I think, to, to keeping that momentum going. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric Berger, thanks for joining us today. Um, if listeners want to find you on the Internet and, and look at some of the other work you did, uh, you you got to plug your book, too, uh, which is great. Tell us a little bit about where they can find you. Yeah, I mean, I write for a website called Ars Technica, um, just all space write about space news every day. We're actually hoping to expand our space coverage next year because mm-hmm. there's so much going on. Um, and then I, um, you can find me on Twitter while it still exists at Sci-Guy Space. Um, and, and then I wrote a book about the origins of SpaceX, um, which is, I think, a fascinating story about how the first six years of that company, when they could have failed, and the role Elon Musk played and the role of people that he hired in sort of carrying out his vision. It's really kind of the the story of their gritty, gritty origin origins. Yeah. Definitely a scrappy upstart kind of story. It was a, uh, it was a really fun read. So I definitely recommend it. A scrappy it. upstart story that, that so many other companies are trying to emulate today now that, that sort of following the SpaceX template to, to find similar success and some are finding it and many are not. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Eric, thanks for joining us. This is uh, really fun today. My pleasure. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thanks to Eric for spending some time with me today. It was a lot of fun. If you're looking for some space-themed merchandise for the holidays, don't forget to check out our store at shop.wemartians.com. There's still some time to get merchandise for Christmas, especially if you're in the U.S. where there's some pretty quick shipping. We've got a range of shirts, coffee mugs, and stickers that will surely strike your fancy. Many of our designs are available in different colors and cuts for all shapes and sizes. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. That's shop.wemartians.com. Have a great week and at Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.